There we go. I have to turn that on and off because you do not want to hear me sing. I don't think I'd harmonize very well with Andrew, <laughs> or anybody for that matter. It's great to be here, and uh, it's kind of nice we go through the rotations and I'm getting to see more people. And you know what else is nice about that is it now gives me also an idea of who's at home too, that uh, from previous weeks that I've been here that are not here today, they, they may well be. So I'm getting a better feel for the people in front of me, and that's, that's great. Um, Let's, let's jump into this passage. First, or Philippians chapter 2, 19 to 30. Timothy and Epaphrodites. Let me, let me quickly pray and then I'll, I'll, I'll take us into it. So God, just guide us. Guide me. Uh, take these words. Use them, Lord. Uh, make them yours. Mold them. Shape them into the direction that you would have us go to develop in us the thoughts and uh, the ideas, the convictions, the, the, the truths that you would have us here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let me start by saying I really like this passage. I really like this passage. I think some people might have felt like they got a little bit shortchanged if they got this passage to preach on, but these are the kinds of passages that I really like. It's a personal passage. There's some, some more circumstantial things that Paul's dealing with in this passage. And he takes the time to address sort of the nuts and bolts issues with the Philippians uh, over the travel of Timothy and Epaphrodites back to uh, Philippi. Um, some commentaries, I've read several commentaries in this passage over the past few weeks, some commentaries almost skip right over this section. They give it like a paragraph, and that's about it. And they pretty much tr treat it as though uh, Paul is just taking care of a little bit of uh, personal business here. Let's skip through it and get back to his teaching. <laughs> and literally, like some, some fairly large and hefty commentaries had like a half a page at most on this whole section. However, here's the thing. This passage is still part of Scripture, right? It's still in the Scriptures, and therefore it is God-breathed, right? Inspired, and therefore useful, valuable for teaching, instruction, and training in all righteousness. It's part of that too. It's supposed to be a part of that too. And I, I think that this is more than a worthy passage for a sermon. So let's plunge into it. Timothy. We start with Timothy. Timothy is Paul's apprentice. And uh, Paul writes two letters to Timothy, right? They're coming. When, when Timothy becomes finally the pastor at the church at Ephesus, which was really more than just a church at Ephesus, it was really a center, uh, a, a Christian center for that whole region. And that's where Timothy ends up. He was a half-Jew. His mother was a Jew. And he lived in Leicester, where Paul met him and his mother 14 years before this, when Paul was on his first missionary journey. That's actually when Tim, as a, a boy, became a Christian. And then on Paul's second missionary journey, he passed through Leicester again, and then at 15 years of age, roughly 14, 15, Timothy joined Paul on his missionary journey, the rest of the journey, and then stayed with him for the rest of his missionary journeys. It's now like 20 years later, to, or 14 years later, uh, Timothy is roughly in his mid to late 20s, and he has now been with Paul for 12 to 13 years, 12, 13-ish years. And he's been learning, he's been training, he's been mentored under Paul's direction for that extended period of time. And the way Paul did this mentoring, the way mentoring is usually done, you know, 
you almost get this idea of him being an apprentice, like training up under his father uh, to be a carpenter or something or a plumber or whatever. And just like Paul says, he, he's like a son to me. And we've labored together like father and son. And, and in that mentoring process, it's like Timothy would come along with Paul and watch Paul do what he does. And then Paul would say, okay, Timothy, now come along and, and do it with me. We'll do it side by side together. And then finally, now Paul is sort of launching Timothy and saying, go, now you go and you do it and I'll watch from a distance. In fact, I'll watch from prison is what's happening. And Timothy is now starting to step into Paul's role. For years, Timothy has been going through this process of, of, of mentor, mentorship under the oversight of Paul. And, and you know what's happening now? Sort of historically in the early church, what's happening now is, is there is a change of the guard coming. And Paul is now fading into the background. Uh, and as are the other original apostles. Paul's in chains. His, his life is, is aged. And he's drawing near to his end. And the question is, who's going to do it now? Who's going to step up now? Who has Paul prepared? Who will Paul commend to do what he's been doing? Well, it's Timothy, right? It's Timothy. Timothy is beginning to act in the place of Paul. Paul is going to be sending him to more and more places to basically act on his behalf as sort of like an apostle. And, and that's what Timothy has been trained up for. And here in this letter, Paul gives to the Philippians the highest commendation, I think, that he could of Timothy. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's what Paul says. This guy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In fact, I have no one else like him. I have no others like him. And, and please note what Paul's commendation is not. Here's how Paul does not commend Timothy. He does not say to the, Philipp to the Philippians, Here's this guy, Timothy. He's a great teacher. He is a fantastic preacher. He speaks eloquently and persuasively. He's got the best training and the most impressive credentials. He's got all those initials after his name, you know, like PhD and MDiv and DMIN and all of those things. That's not it. That's not what matters to the Apostle Paul. But rather, here's what matters. He will be genuinely genuinely concerned for your welfare. That, I think, is the very best of qualities for a pastor. That quality, you see, it springs out of... You know where that quality comes from? It comes from sheer, unselfish love more than anything else. And that's the highest of Christian virtues. And that's Timothy. That's Timothy. You know, I'm, I'm here as a transitional pastor. As Leland is moving on, um, our job over the next many months will be to help work together to find the next pastor of this church. Well, at some point in time, we're going to be putting together sort of a list of criteria of what we're looking for in the pastor. I would recommend to you that this be on the top of the list. This be on the very top of the list that we find someone who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That is far more important than the degrees, <laughs> than, than the eloquence, and than anything else, that he be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And Paul actually goes on to contrast Timothy with many others. He doesn't specify who they are, but, but apparently too many other 
sort of would-be pastors, would-be leaders, would-be persons who want to take the lead are not like Him, Paul says. They, those others, seek after their own interests. Far too much. Far too much. They seek after their own agendas, their own ways, their own biases, their own preferences, rather than the true welfare for the Philippians. Rather than the actual interests of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus our Lord and King. And, and be sure of this. You know, here's one of my first big points. Be sure, be absolutely sure of this. The genuine welfare of any congregation, the genuine welfare of any person, the genuine welfare of any community is found in the interests of Jesus for that congregation or that person or that community. If you want your best interests served, then serve the interests of Jesus. That's where they are. That's where your own best interests are, embedded in the interests of Jesus for you and for us. And Timothy, see, here's the thing about Timothy. Timothy can be counted upon to genuinely, genuinely care for the welfare of the Philippians. And by doing so, he is leading them not into his own interests, not even into their varied interests among the congregation, but rather, much better, much more better, <laughs> he leads them into the interest of Jesus for all of them. Right? Jesus' interests are truly our own best interests. That is how you best love and care for and minister to a church <laughs> or to another person. Lead them into Christ's interests for them. Not your own, not anyone else's Christ's. Timothy, you see, is a man who apparently has learned and actually built a track record, built a, a reputation of doing exactly what Paul has encouraged the church to do earlier in this letter. To do, in fact, what Christ has done. To have that attitude, to practice that spiritual art of doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather humbly considering others before oneself. That's Timothy. That's Timothy. Timothy is an example of that. Paul is an example of that. Jesus was the premium example of that. And I love it the way this is flowing down from Jesus to Paul. Jesus taught Paul this. Now Paul teaches Timothy this. Now Timothy is going to go to the Philippians and teach them that. That's mentorship. That's discipleship. That's the calling that we have as God's people. To, to share that. To flow that down from one to the next, to the next, to the next. To be discipled and then to disciple. Right? That's our calling. And that's what's happening exactly here with Jesus, Paul, Timothy. I'm absolutely sure that Paul could have just as well said this. I have no one else like him who is generally concerned for my own welfare. Right? That was true too. He's not only just concerned for the Philippians, he's, Paul, he's always been concerned for Paul's welfare too. I mean, Paul's going through some pretty tough stuff right now. He's been in prison for quite some time, it seems. He's awaiting trial. A trial that could well end in his death. And many have abandoned him. And, and even worse, some have tried to even actually make things more 
difficult for him in this difficult time. And sure enough, association and partnership with Paul right now could well lead to guilt by association for someone like Timothy, who is so close at Paul's side. But nonetheless, there's Timothy, not, not thinking about his own welfare, but sacrificially, sacrificially uh, doing the right thing for Paul doing the right thing for his Lord, doing the right thing for the cause of the gospel and putting Paul's interest and Christ's interest and the gospel's interest ahead of himself. I have nobody else like him, (laughs) Paul says. No one else quite like him. So I'm sending him to you. (laughs) What a gift. He's going to give up Timothy. This is person that he has no one else like. And he's going to give him, send him off to the Philippians to act in his place to minister in His stead. I'm sending Him to you, both to genuinely care for your needs, but also so that you can emulate Him. Also so that you can learn from Him. Also you can watch Him and grow with Him and grow because of Him. He emulates His commitment to the interests of Christ and the welfare of others. So, that's Timothy. I've been in this church for a few weeks now. I've met some people. Mostly I've met the leaders of this church. You know, you kind of get started in a new group of people, and the persons that I tend to connect with the most at first are the leaders of this church. And I've got to tell you, church, we've got some good leaders. I, I could almost say, man, there's not very many others like them. Um, George is not here this week. Deacon George. I can't tell you how touched I've been by his care for me in trying to just get me set up here even in the church. And he spent a whole week sort of moving me from one room and getting it ready for me to work out of, and then moving me to another room and getting it set up for me to work out of, while a third room was being prepared for me to work in. And then on that day that it was done, he came and he moved me. And we and George is strong. I don't know if you guys noticed that. This guy's got some man strength in him. We carried this hulking desk Uh, George on one end, walking backwards, with me and Leland on the other end, walking forwards. And we could, Leland and I could barely get the thing there, and George was just like, yeah, no problem. And he carried us over there. He carried me over there. And, you know, I have just so appreciated his sacrifice of time and energy and work to help set me up there. Herman, (laughs) I've been blessed. We've been blessed with the gift of a place to stay at your house and you share your beautiful property with us and allow us to stay there. That means a lot to me. And Sean, you are the first person uh, in town here to invite me over to your house. I've not been there yet, but you've, you've made the invitation. That's, you, know, you, you remember stuff like that. The first person who invited me into their home. You're also the first person to befriend me on Facebook. <laughs> You're one of the only people I hear from when I'm back on the mainland because of the Facebook connection. That's friendship. That means something to me. That's something. You know, and I, and I look at the three men here who are your leaders, and I realize that Leland has poured into these people. Leland has been the one who has poured into them, and... Uh, He's created a genuine concern in them for the rest of this church. I recognize that. And, you know, I've also been to the meetings, the leadership meetings, and as they gathered together to care for the church. And I want to tell you the first thing that I realized that that meeting is not. 
what that meeting is not is it is not a gossip session. It's not. It is a time of genuine concern for meeting the needs of the people of this church. The people, the people, the people, and the things that they face in the course of life. And they're meeting together to care for those people. Sacrificially, lovingly, seeking out these people and how they can minister to them. In the interests of Christ, pouring those interests of Christ into the lives of those people. They are genuinely, genuinely caring for your welfare. And uh, thank you guys for that. And thank you, church, for raising up those men amongst you. Now, that's my first section on Timothy. Let's move over to Epaphrodites, who we don't know much about. We've got a lot more information about Timothy in the New Testament than we do about Epaphrodites. In fact, this is the only place Epaphrodites is ever mentioned. So we, we step into this section and we kind of uh, learn a lot about this guy. Everything we learn about him, in fact, is new <laughs> and, and the only information we have. We find this section actually filled, I find it, filled with feeling and emotion. Paul's feelings and emotions. Though Epaphrodites is kind of the, the, the subject of this section of this, this, this chapter, it's really about Paul's emotions for him. That's really what sort of comes out here, is Paul's feelings. And I really like this section in truth. Here's the truth of it. I need sections like this in Scripture to make Scripture make sense to me, to have Scripture touch me. I need these personal sections of Scripture for the truth of Scripture to get through to me. That's just, that's just the kind of person that I am. I need these personal, e emotional, vulnerable connections, the stories, the exchanges, the feelings. It makes it all very real and applicable for me. Um, I gravitate towards that, both in Scripture and in my preaching too. And you'll find that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a lot of personal things and vulnerable things when I preach. Uh, it's because that's where it makes sense to me. That's where it connects for me. I gravitate towards that stuff. If all of Scripture was solid, dense, theological teaching in the abstract, it wouldn't work very well for me. I would struggle with that. I need the intersection. I need actually the clashing and, and the messiness of my theology overlapping with the stories of my life and other people's lives. The issues of life. I mean, after all, life. You know, that's where theology is lived. Life. All of myself. All of Paul's self. Moses' self. David's self. Jeremiah's self. Yourself. Your lives, our lives, ourselves. That is where our theology and our beliefs are lived out and practiced and pursued. It's incredibly important that those things intersect. That that big textbook that says theology on it, that's not really theology. When that thing intersects with my life, that's theology. Right? That's where it really happens. And the living out of our theology, you know what? It's often an up and down wrestling match. As we seek to learn and understand the truths of God, and then we have to submit ourselves to them. And I don't know about you, but I don't always submit so easily. Now, what about you? you struggle sometimes with that whole concept of submission? I don't always submit so easily. And I need to seek to learn to understand God's truth and then submit my life to those truths. Actually giving over ourselves to them. To be transformed by them. And what is transformed? Well, transformed almost literally means radically changed. 
That's what transformed means. It means radically changed by those truths. Now, I don't know about you again, but I don't do change so easily. <laughs> I sometimes buck against change. I sometimes have a hard time with change, especially when I'm comfortable where I am. But Scripture, my theology is the thing that pushes me in those directions towards the right things, the godly things. And that's a process, honestly. That's a process. That's work. That's challenge. That's life. The journey of life with God is exactly that. It's learning to keep in step with Him. And sometimes I lag behind, and I sometimes even hurt because of it, and then need to catch up and get back into step with Him. And I'm so grateful for the fact that God realizes that we need those personal, vulnerable, emotional moments, those overlaps, that He actually saw to it that many many of them are represented in the Scriptures by the men and the women who are the characters of Scripture and even by those whom God called and inspired to actually pen the Scriptures. You see, those people who penned those Scriptures, they even include the stories, the feelings, sometimes the fears and the struggles, even the struggles with the very truths that they are penning, that they themselves that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's not only here. It's in several cases where Paul actually pens something and then confesses how much he struggles with it. And I think of Romans chapter 7 as the prime example of that, where he talks all about the goodness of the law and how we should follow it for all of its goodness. And then he goes on towards the end of chapter 7 to express how much he struggles with actually doing that and almost talks about how there's these two sides to him, the flesh side that's dragging him back and making it hard. And the thing that he wants to do, he has a hard time doing. And the thing that he doesn't want to do, is somehow he seems to end up doing that. Can you relate? Can anybody else relate to that? You know, of course we can. That's what it is. He concludes by saying, so I find it to be a law, a principle in my life, that when, I, that when I, I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Right? It does, doesn't it? Temptation. And the other way, the other option, the easy way, the my way, it lies so close at hand. He goes on to say, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members the parts of his body an other law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He concludes by saying, wretched man that I am. <laughs> There's quite an admission. Paul, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you see the wrestling match? You can sense it if you read that whole section. And he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And of course, he goes right on to, be, to say, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he saved me. Right? Not by my righteousness, but by his grace. And also by his grace, he gives me hope that I can grow in and grow towards actually living out his law and purposes. And in this passage too, when he talks about Epaphrodites, it's another great example of Paul feeling his way personally and vulnerably through you know, the ups and downs, the ins and outs of his own theology as it tries to and works to play itself out in his own life. In this passage, we see Paul did not live 
his Christian life without stress or strain. He was not a, it was not a Christian experience of pure, unbroken ecstasy for Paul, full of joy and free of worry, full of cheer and void of anxiety. Because he's feeling anxious right now. He admits it, right? Paul wrote great inspired theology and truth. But Paul would also, under the inspiration of that same Holy Spirit, write in vulnerability about his life challenges, right? To live out that theology and truth in the circumstances that he faces in this so broken world that he must live in. So let's quickly look at it. I mean, let, let me pose an objection for you. <laughs> A potential objection for you. The great Apostle Paul. Worry? How can that be? Surely he wouldn't worry. The great Apostle Paul feel anxiety and struggle in practicing what he preaches? Almost doesn't feel right to us, does it? We can't have that, can we? But we can, and it's the truth. I mean, wh why didn't Paul submit all of his concerns for Epaphrodites and his sickness to the Lord? I mean, in, if we jump forward to chapter 4, in this very gospel, and there's this very epistle. Chapter 4, there's this great passage where Paul writes, um, and, and he talks about how we should rejoice in all things and commit everything to God in prayer. And then what? What will happen? And then the peace that passes, what? Understanding will be yours. And, and yes, certainly Paul says that and believes that, but, but this passage gives us some perspective into Paul's life as he tries to work that out in his own life. This passage is an emotional example of Paul's theology intersecting and overlapping with his life. It's where the rubber meets the road for Paul. This is a picture of Paul working out his theology, practicing it, training with it, wrestling with it. And it's not just easy and simple. I don't think it's supposed to be. Clearly, Paul was emotionally attached to Epaphrodites. And clearly, he was truly horrified at the thought that this young man, this gift of a man from a church that he loved, might die under his care, under his watch. I mean, think about that, how difficult that would be. To have this, the best man that they have there in Philippi gets sent to Paul, and Paul kills him. Well, Paul wouldn't kill him, but he dies on that mission under Paul's care. How horrible would that be? You know, this actually strikes far, far too close to home for me. I had a sister who, when she was 19, and she was the best of us, between my friends and my, my brother, we all recognized she was the best of us. And she went off at 19 to join. She was a very gifted uh, actor in, in theater. And she joined a Christian drama troupe that, that portrayed these gospel plays all across North America, and they were even going to tour Europe. And she was with them for a few months, and we got word that the van she was touring in had turned over on the highway, and she was the only one killed. And I remember the day that the leader of that troop that she was with and one of the leaders of the organization that she was with came to our house to extend their condolences. That was a brutal day. And you know what? As hard a day that was for us, it was even 
for those people who had to come and give their condolences for having my parents' daughter, my sister, die on their watch while she was in service with them, while she was, in a sense, entrusted to them. There was so much weeping during that meeting, and it was mostly from them. That's where Paul was. That's what he would have been feeling in this situation. Nothing less. That's what he was faced with here. And it was hard on him. It was brutally hard on him. Paul feels some responsibility for for Epaphrodites here. And and he tells us as much in, in verse 28 that he was struggling with anxiousness there. He was feeling anxiety there. And in verse 27, he, he, he says that he's so grateful that God took pity not only on Epaphrodites, but also upon him, Paul, lest he should be, you know, have sorrow upon sorrow heaped upon him. He, it, was, it would have been too much. That's what he's saying. When he says sorrow upon sorrow, he's saying it had just been piled up too much if that happened. This, this was becoming serious overwhelming, seriously overwhelming for Paul. Clearly Paul is feeling a burden of sorrow um, for Epaphrodites. He was. Personally in his own life. Right? I mean, he was going through so much already. He, he was imprisoned. He was, he was cut off from his friends. Uh, he, he was restricted in his movements. He, his life was being threatened. He was having to prepare a defense. Many people had turned against him. And now this! You know, that would have been the, the sorrow upon sorrow that he wouldn't have been able to cope with. So why couldn't Paul just give this over to God? Let this go. And simply rejoice, like he's telling the Philippians to do, right? And, and, and if Epaphrodites did die, why would that so overwhelm Paul? Because after all, he just said in chapter 1, he just said it, that, that to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. To depart this life and to be with the Lord is far better, he says. And yes, there is a certain amount of contradiction that's happening here between what Paul teaches and what he's experiencing. <laughs> his words, his teachings, his theologies say the one thing um, with so much conviction and truth because they are truth. And yes, that is the truth that he is called to, that we are called to but to live it out in real time under the real threats of real life with real emotions and real feelings, sometimes it leaves us overwhelmed. Sometimes it causes us to worry. Sometimes we feel anxiousness. Paul too. Paul too. Well, you know what? This is exactly what discipleship is all about. Working through this stuff in real life. Working at disciplining, training ourselves to actually live out in faith and in trust more and more the things that we say we believe. And tests come. By, by God's design, tests come. And by the brokenness of the world that we live in, tests come. And we don't just simply pass them all easily. At least I don't. We struggle with some of them. That's where we have to 
learn to lean on God all the more. <laughs> more than we ever thought we would have to sometimes. More than we have in the past. And that's where we grow. Have you noticed that the easy things you overcome are not the places where you grow? It's the hard things that at first you can't overcome and then somehow learn to overcome with God. That's where you really grow. We try, we struggle. We get angst-ridden and overwhelmed. We stumble, we falter. We come to the end of ourselves. You see, that's part of the process. That's part of what has to happen. We come to the end of ourselves. And at the end of ourselves, we throw ourselves onto the grace of God, the hope of God, the help of God. And then He proves Himself trustworthy. He proves His Word true. And then we learn to trust it that much more. And we grow. That's how we grow. That's how we grow. Bit by bit, step by step, lesson by lesson, sometimes stumble by stumble. Following Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, it's difficult. I, I can't, I, I'd like to sugarcoat it for you, but that wouldn't be true. It can be difficult. It can be difficult. It's wonderful, and it's worth everything, but it can be difficult. Yeah, have you noticed that some of the best things are kind of difficult? The valuable things are often the hardest to work for. <laughs> it's, it, it's like that. Reality's like that. The best things tend to cost us the most. This is the best thing. It can be difficult to pursue. The battle to do so in everything that life throws at us, well, there are wins and losses. There are ups and downs. But just as the battle is real, so also the victory is secured. It is. No matter how much we might angst or worry or struggle through it, the victory is actually already secured. The victory is secured because Jesus has secured it for us. And a big part of what discipleship is is just coming to the realization of that. <laughs> and that's not always easy. But he'll get us there. He promises he will. So Paul loves his friend. He's deeply attached to him. Especially those who work and struggle with him alongside for the cause of the gospel. As Epaphrodites has done. Paul doesn't want to lose Epaphrodites or see him suffer or, or see great grief come to the church at Philippi that sent him or great grief to come to his own heart. These emotions, these feelings, they're, they're a part of the whole equation for Paul. It, it, his theology includes this stuff. It's all about this stuff too. The whole equation is part of it for Paul. The pain is part of the risk of loving. And our theology of love and joy has to be balanced with the theology of death and grief. Right? Hope and loss. It all mingles together in us in the circumstances of life. And it's not always neat and tidy and straightforward and simple. Not in our hearts and heads anyways. And we have to work our way through it. Here's the truth. Here's the ultimate truth. Jesus is enthroned in heaven above all as Lord over all things. And eventually, everything will be just as it should be. But until then... <laughs> living in this world toward that eventual hope and reality, well, we can't try to pretend that we don't have a human emotions that, that are wrapped around all of those experiences along with our theology. 
they all impact us. God made us that way. With those emotions and feelings, He understands. And we need to. We must work through and wrestle through and discipline our way through, pray our way through, sometimes cry our way through, sometimes angst our way through, sometimes even with some fear, work our way through a point to a point of trust. <laughs> we've got to give over. And we've got to bear with one another. We're, we're told to do that in Scripture, aren't we? To those who are struggling. Bear with them, we're told. Sympathize. Understand. And help bring them along with ourselves to the point of trust. Feel and trust. Emote and then trust. Give over. Break down if you have to. Hang on and then trust. And He'll be there. And when we finally find out in the end that He's there and His Word was true and good and He's faithful, it's when we grow. It's when we grow the most. Jesus wept. <laughs> he wasn't unfamiliar with that. He sweat drops of blood. <laughs> he grieved and hurt. I can't imagine it was easy for him. I mean, when you look at that scene of him in the garden praying, not, you know, God, if this cup could possibly be passed from me, sweating drops of blood, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That wasn't easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't have been sweating drops of blood. It was hard. It is hard. And we're supposed to learn from him and how he did it, how he managed it. How he trusted God and the will of God through it. He did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. We won't. I can guarantee you that. We won't. But we can follow him. And he understands because he went through it too. So you can trust him with it. Because he knows. He understands. The joy that Paul talks about in this letter is the kind of joy that takes all of this into account. It's the kind of joy that actually hopes. That's probably the biggest element of this joy is that it never loses hope. Even when things are hard and difficult, it hopes. It learns to hope and to trust one who is proving himself to be more and more and more trustworthy in our lives always when we give him the chance to. That's why we can have joy. And there's a great deal of vulnerability that needs to be a part of the experience of all of that. Yesterday, I love it when theology walks right into my office. When my theology actually steps right into my world and I can live it out with someone right in front of me. Yesterday, someone walked into my office. We started talking. We started sharing a vulnerable moment. It was a good, vulnerable moment. And this person I'm talking to says, I know I'm not supposed to worry. I know that's a sin. I know I'm not supposed to be anxious. I'm like, well, this is perfect. <laughs> this is my sermon. And they're sharing with me. She says, but hard things happen. Scary things are happening. I'm not sure where this scenario is going to go. I'm concerned, and I'm trying not to worry, but I'm, I'm worrying. You're just like Paul. That's okay. <laughs> Paul wrestled with that too. He worried too. Though he knew what he was supposed to do, he still had some worry, as this person did. And that is where our theology intersects our real lives. That's a challenge for us. Right? But that is also where God has His greatest opportunities to help us grow right? into greater faith and greater trust in Him. Okay. I'm going to wrap up with a last story. 
quick one. Um, anybody see the movie about Mr. Rogers? A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Anybody? Okay, good. A few people did. I highly recommend it. Would you recommend it? Good. I was, I'm glad the elder recommends it too. Fantastic movie, especially when I did some research on Fred Rogers. Did you know that, you all know who Fred Rogers is, right? Yeah, okay. Did you know that Fred Rogers had a seminary degree? He had a Bachelor of Divinity degree. He worked and was ordained as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. The church eventually recognized his call to work with children at large, and they then commissioned him and actually ordained him to minister to the children of the world out there. And that's when he stepped into his work with children, and the whole Mr. Rogers neighborhood was invented, created. Um, I recommend that movie tremendously. The movie is centered around an article that was written by a fairly cynical writer for Esquire magazine. That's sort of the subject of the movie. The article's author was Tom Junod, and he didn't want to write this article. He thought it was below him and beneath him to write an article about this silly guy who played with kids all the time. And he was cynical of Mr. Rogers, who was just making his living entertaining children. But then he got to know him. Then he got to know him. The article, I also recommend the article. It was, it was uh, uh, published in Esquire magazine on November 1998. The article is called, Can You Say Hero? And Tom Junod, cynic, became friends with Mr. Rogers over the months that he interviewed him. What's more, he became hugely touched and changed by Mr. Rogers' impact in his life. One of the things that cynical Tom was most struck by was the way that Fred Rogers dealt with his challenges. And this is what struck me most about both the movie and some of the research I did on it afterwards. Fred Rogers was bullied a lot as a child. Teeth. He was overweight. Which is funny because he's a very thin man in, in adult life, but he was overweight as a child, and he was bullied a lot. And he ended up with a lot of residual anger that could be quite explosive and damaging in his life. Uh, he also bore the weight of criticism from a lot of people who thought he was pretty hokey and teased him even as an adult. And he also felt a lot of the weight for all of the children who turned to him for help and for hope in their own little lives, sometimes with huge problems. And they brought them to Mr. Rogers in the form of letters. He got thousands of letters a week. Many of them just nice letters from kids, but many of them with kids struggling and suffering under severe circumstances. He thoughtfully answered every one of those letters over the years. How did he do it all? It's one of the questions. How did he cope? the anger and the pain from his past. And one of the things that, that strikes me, that really gripped me about this, because that's something I struggle with too, a level of anger that can be explosive within me. This is me being vulnerable, okay? And I've been a pastor for 28 years, and I've counseled and talked with a lot of men during those years, and I have come to find that that's a really common thing. <laughs> really common thing with men is we've got a lot of anger bottled up and we just sort of stuff it down until the cork pops and it comes out. And we don't really know what to do with it. 
Mr. Rogers had the same problem. That's one of the things that gripped me about this because I can identify with it because I have the same, same challenges. Well, Fred Rogers wrestled with this for sure. As a disciple of Jesus, he wrestled with this for sure. This was where his theology and his real life intersected in a bigger way than it does for most of us. But what I was so struck by was the way that God led him to overcome and to manage and deal with those challenges in his life. Out of necessity, out of necessity, you know, he worked himself, because of his calling, because of what God called him to do, and the necessity required in continuing to be able to do that, Mr. Rogers disciplined himself and worked himself into the habit of raising at rising at 4.30 every morning. Every morning. Not just some mornings, every morning. And he would spend the first hour he got up reading Scripture. One hour reading Scripture. Then he would spend one hour praying for his own needs and for the needs of all those people who brought their issues to him in life. And to pray for the people who didn't like him <laughs> and who criticized him. And then he would go out to the local pool and swim for me. That was the first three hours of his day every day. Every day. That is how he wrestled with anger. He committed himself to those disciplines. Right? And when the anger threatened to overwhelm him, when, when criticism threatened to tear him down, when the weight and the cares and the pains of all those children threatened to overwhelm him, this was how God led him to be able to cope with that, to deal with that. And many times early on, he felt as though the weight of those things would crush him. But he learned to wrestle with them and wrestle with God through them. And God brought him to this place of dealing with it. Scripture and prayer, you guys. Scripture and prayer. Prayer and Scripture. Scripture and prayer. Prayer and Scripture. That's the way. A little bit of exercise is going to help too. Prayer and Scripture. I remember you reading Eugene Peterson's fantastic book, um, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Not read that book, read it. Great book. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. At the end of that book, he had, there's actually two editions of the book. The book was so popular that the Publishers came back to him and said, can you write it again, another edition again? So he wrote another, and he added an appendix at the back. And at the back of that appendix, he talks about Scripture. He goes, if I can give everybody out there who cares about what I think one piece of advice, it's Scripture. Build your life around Scripture. And he talks about how they can't be one or the other. They can't even be separate things. They're one and the same thing. Scripture must mingle with prayer and prayer must and he writes this short little treatise on why that's important, and it's amazing. Read it if you get a chance to. I recommend that too. That's discipleship, you guys. That's the core of discipleship. That's the core of how we make our theology real in our own lives, <laughs> where we actually live it, where we take it out of the book. <laughs> I mean, the Bible really should be our theology, but, but there's other theology books written. Of all of those books, the truths that are contained in there need to come into our lives. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where we have to work it out, work it out, work it out. Scripture and prayer. Prayer and Scripture. That's how we work it out. That's how we will successfully grow through all of those things in our lives. Amen? God, thank you for this chance to grow. 
and to be challenged in your word, your truth. Words and truths that sometimes seem too big for us, too much for us to actually live up to. And Lord, in truth they are. If we think of ourselves and our own strengths and our own abilities, they are too big, too challenging. But God, you don't ask us to do it on our own. You call us, you invite us to do it with you. And you'll lead us into it. And you'll give us the ability, the strength, the wisdom, the power, the everything to do it. And God, I think the way that you invite us to you to do it is through that scripture prayer experience, that prayer scripture experience. That's us coming to you. That's us bringing ourselves alongside you and keeping in step with you that you might lead us, that we might lean upon you to walk through all of these things and build your truths into our lives as your disciples. God, help us to do what we need to do as well in giving ourselves to Scripture and prayer. Prayer. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We're going to do communion.